episode of the Free Radicals podcast. My name is Will. I'm Robin. Hi. Thanks so much for listening. This is a slightly delayed episode, and uh, I'm your host, and this is my now wife and partner, Robin. Over the past few weeks, we have gotten married and moved in together and incorporated two households, so we're still scrambling with some of those things, and I appreciate your patience as we go through some of that. In our last episode, we talked about a new priest that uh, moved into Munster named Bernard Rothman, and we introduced the Anabaptist movement within the wider Reformation in Europe. And this week, I'm calling the episode Bernard Rothman and the Three Wise Men of the Radical Reformation Mm. for reasons that I'll explain soon. Uh, But before we get started, uh, Robin, what is jumping out to you so far in the story? I've just been really surprised at the turn of events and the strange convictions of people that has led them to make sort of odd decisions. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how uh, what is for us fairly minor theological or religious convictions Mm, are like life and death uh, for people in this story. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, And as a church nerd, a theology nerd, that hasn't gotten me a lot of social points in this this life. But if I lived 500 years ago, I might have been a rock star. Now I get it. (laughs) Uh, So we talked in the last episode about some of the meetings among the Protestants to, to decide legitimacy. And those meetings decided who was in and who was out. And a consistent theme of those meetings is that the Anabaptists were out. Uh, But still, every now and then, uh, somewhere in Central Europe, an Anabaptist would get a whiff of power. Hmm. Uh, Either an established leader who would be convinced of Anabaptist ideas, or an Anabaptist outside of an established power Hmm. structure, but who could win an audience. And uh, when that would happen, other Anabaptists in other places would take notice. Uh, Would they be able to hold on to power or or at least find toleration or would they inevitably be killed? Was there a way to engage with civic authorities while still holding on to integrity or was that a lost cause? They wanted to know are there parts of the Anabaptist belief system that appealed to, to, to the general public? Um, and what, what could they focus on to find some kind of legitimacy? Did they want to grow Anabaptism or did they just want to maintain it or did they want, they just want a safety to live their beliefs? Yeah, probably all of the above. I think people wanted to find, uh, some level of safety. You can only run for your life for so long. Mm. Um, but they had discovered something new and powerful and they wanted to, live that out with integrity. So it was kind of a balance mm-hmm. of convictions and survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the first examples of this happening uh, is in, uh, I'll probably say it wrong, but Waldshut is is uh, is how you say it. It's near the Swiss-German border. And they had a priest there named Balthazar Hubmeier. And interesting point, when my son was born, Balthazar was one of the names that I suggested <laughs> that was rejected. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but for a long time, Balthazar was a model Catholic. He he studied under uh, Johannes Eck, who famously beat, maybe even embarrassed, Martin Luther in, in a debate. Uh, 
And uh, he also led a violent removal of Jews from the German city of Regensburg and installed some sort of artistic religious shrine in, in, that, in that city. So there's, there's a lot that can be said about how wrong that was. Uh, but at the time, that made him a legitimate leader within within that movement. So he was violent, and then he turned into an Anabaptist, or his right? He thought he was an Anabaptist, but he was a violent one. No, he was he was violent, and then later became an Anabaptist. Oh, okay. When when Balthazar arrives in Waldshut, because he had been in other parts of Germany before that, he connects with the Zurich group of of Anabaptists. Uh, last week I talked about Conrad Grable, Felix Montz, George Blaurock, and uh, the, the baptism that happened there. Hubmeyer was, was kind of a part of some of those stories. He okay. was even part of a debate where, where he was on the side of arguing against infant baptism. Mm-hmm. And Ulrich Zwingli, the town uh, priest, lead pastor, was arguing in favor of child baptism. Mm. And Balthazar Hubmeyer's main points were things that he took from Ulrich Zwingli's writings. Mm. Because earlier Zwingli was kind of wondering, what can we do about baptism? Uh, but Zwingli was the local guy, so the local council said, we're still going to side with, with Zwingli, and, and he lost, and, and Hubmeier lost. There was, there was still a connection between the Zurich group and, and Hubmeier, uh, not very far apart. So then when those first baptisms happened that we talked about in the last episode, then they went from there and they were super evangelical and, and proud of what they had done, which got them arrested and sometimes banished. So oh, okay. uh, there was a guy who was part of that first baptism mm-hmm. movement who was banished, kicked out of Zurich. Mm-hmm. And because he had connected with Hubmeier before, then he went to Waldshut. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he got there... Not only did Hubmeier receive him, but when they, after talking, Hubmeier asked this guy named Willem Roiblin, was his name, asked Roiblin to baptize Hubmeier, and Roiblin baptized 60 other people. Oh my. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it was uh, one of these examples of popular movements mm-hmm. that kind of was inspiring to people. Yeah. Unfortunately, the prince of that area... That uh, was Ferdinand I, who later became the staunchly Catholic Holy Roman Emperor. Oh. There's a long political explanation of, of who he was okay. or who he became. Uh, but he had no tolerance for Hubmeier and Anabaptists. So then Hubmeier had to leave, went to Austria, and eventually that land came under Ferdinand's control. And uh, Hubmeier was, was arrested and, and killed. But for, uh, for people like Bernard Rothman, they're looking out for examples of how does it work to have Anabaptist beliefs and hold on to some mm-hmm. kind of power. Uh, so that was kind of the struggle. Was there something that they could do to make the leaders take the Anabaptist movement seriously? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, 60 people was a lot mm-hmm. in, in a place the size of Waldshut. Mm-hmm. So if you could baptize a whole bunch of people, mm-hmm. uh, then maybe the lo- local authorities could uh, respect the movement. Maybe then they could kind of back off of some of the stronger punishments they wanted to do. But it just seems like... If they were at a different place, there'd be different rules. So it seems like there's no consistency. Mm-hmm. Like maybe there was like some places where it was okay and then another place where it wasn't okay. So it's like there's kind of a precarious 
yeah. situation. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so yeah, we'll talk a little bit later about the town of Strasbourg where there was mm. more freedom. And uh, Munster was kind of in this balance. They did have a Catholic bishop nearby that had some power. But if they could build up enough popularity, maybe there'd mm. be enough power. Mm. So it's it's one of those questions about uh, what does it mean to hold power in this way. Yeah, and also, like, I don't know, maybe the definition of power in this circumstance could be considered something else. Like, is that the right word? Yeah, so there are different levels of power, right? That some of these people have military power what's religious power yeah. if, if you can baptize a hundred people that's people power the it's there's different levels of of power and if if you have access to one then you sometimes have to leverage one against another i mentioned in the in the last episode that the leaders in in munster wanted to send rothman away so that he could be influenced by more appropriate church voices and right this is kind of the first uh, fact-checking uh, example in this episode. Because I had said Paris. Hmm. Somebody pointed out that it wasn't Paris. Hmm. So I double-checked. It was Cologne. Oh, okay. Nobody goes to Paris to become more conservative. Not then or, uh, or now. Okay, that makes sense. So he, they sent him to Cologne, which until very recently was a bastion of conservative Catholic thought. Hmm, and the cathedral in Cologne is fantastic. It's a UNESCO World Heritage site. So I just thought it might, as a piece of trivia, Mm. do you know any other UNESCO World Heritage sites? Is Writing on Stone Provincial Park one of them? Um, I don't think so. So we're here in Alberta, Canada, for the benefit of the listeners. Uh, So Dinosaur Provincial Park in uh, in Drumheller, Mm -hmm. where they've excavated dinosaur bones from, is, Mm. is one. Uh, Waterton Lakes International Park because it's mm, on the on the right. border of the two countries, and uh, the tragically named head smashed in Buffalo Jump. Have you ever been there? Indeed, I have. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is fantastic. So uh, it isn't clear from the writings if Rothman went to Cologne or not, mm. but what is clear is he didn't go back to standard Catholic teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a few years later, it was clear that the reform movement in Munster wasn't dying down Rothman or no Rothman. Mm-hmm. So they sent him on a different kind of trip. Okay. Uh, they sent him on a Reformation tour that would make church history nerds like me mm-hmm. uh, wildly Gosh, jealous. Okay. Yeah. So uh, he went to Wittenberg, Marburg, and Strasbourg, mm. so three of the big bergs that uh, are part of this story. So uh, in Wittenberg, he got to study under Luther, or at least listen to some mm. lectures or sermons from, from Luther. And a, a lot of people went to Wittenberg to get endorsement from Luther. He had kind of become mm. a, okay. a gatekeeper of the reform movement. Yeah. And uh, lots of people, including some of the people we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, went to Luther, got letters of endorsement so that they could lead churches in Lutheran Germany. Okay, that makes sense. It seems unlikely that Rothman would have asked for a letter of endorsement mm-hmm. from Luther, and even more unlikely that Luther would have given him one based on what we know mm-hmm. about what Rothman okay. believed. Uh, so the second stop on Rothman's Reformation tour was Marburg, where the colloquy was, that meeting that we talked about last week where Luther and Zwingli argued about the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Reform Movement got a lot of credibility from that meeting. Mm -hmm. They worked out some of the problems. They came to agreement on Mm -hmm. some important things. Uh, But only a few months after that, there was another meeting 
in the German city of Spire. And there were really important Catholic leaders there. And, and they decided at that meeting, and there were other uh, reform mm -hmm. leaders there too, but the, the Catholics there decided that no more reform changes were allowed. Okay. And at the 1526 uh, gathering in Spire, they had kind of paused the decision that was made at the Diet of Worms. What's the Diet of Worms? That sounds strange. So, yeah, unfortunately named. So the Diet, just it's just a word that means, you know, an important meeting where decisions are made. Okay. And Worms was the city in Germany where the Diet of Worms happened. Oh, <laughs> that's quite funny. Yeah. So um, nobody was eating worms at the at the Diet yeah. of Worms. They weren't on a worm diet. They weren't on a worm diet. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> they were on a worm-free diet. But at the Diet of Worms, they declared Martin Luther a heretic. Oh. But at the 1526 Diet of Spire, they said, okay, maybe we were too harsh. Uh... Let's, work, let's figure some things out. But in the 1529 Diet of Spire, they said, no, we changed our minds. He is a heretic. Oh. And wow. uh, they said that no reform changes were allowed after that. Mm -hmm. And a whole bunch of the non-Catholic leaders there said, we protest. We, we don't accept this ruling. Okay. So they protested that ruling, right. which is why they were called Protestants. Oh. That's why the name stuck. Oh, weird. The other thing relevant to this conversation that was decided at the 1529 Diet of Spire is that Anabaptists were also not protected and could now be killed for their oh, beliefs. that's bad news. It would have been nice if the Protestants would have also protested this particular <laughs> point, but they didn't. Yeah, well, you gotta have your hands full sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's also worth noting that nobody was waiting around for this before they started killing Anabaptists. Mm -hmm. So this is 1529. Mm -hmm. uh, Balthasar Hubmeier, who I mentioned, was executed in 1528 in oh, okay. Austria for his beliefs. Mm -hmm. Felix Mons, who we talked about in the last episode, was executed in 1527 for his beliefs. And in the Peasant War, shortly before that, thousands, maybe 100,000 peasant soldiers, many of whom were written off as Anabaptists, were also killed. So nobody was waiting around yeah. for permission, but it got a lot easier yeah. after wow. 1529, if that's what you wanted yeah. to do. Wow. Uh, but also, that same meeting declared Martin Luther a heretic, and he died of old age many, many years later. So the the meaning and the importance of these decisions is kind of up for, yeah. up for historical debate. And the last stop on this Reformation tour was the city of Strasbourg, which is in present-day France, but is kind of in between a whole bunch of, uh, whole bunch of political powers uh, then and, and even now. And the idea was, I think, that the leaders wanted Bernard Rothman to study under uh, Martin Bootser and Wolfgang Capito. Wolfgang also... <laughs> was on the list of really? rejected names. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. It would have been a fun name. Yeah, that is Wolfgang. fun. So, uh, like, even now, the city of Strasbourg is is technically French, but is is still very German. And because of where it sits in between things, the present day European Parliament meets in Strasbourg. It works as a sort of a neutral site for mm -hmm. for some I of see. these conversations. And in the 16th century. There were political and religious forces in, in French territories mm -hmm. and in German territories 
But Strasbourg sort of sat in the middle and was kind of independent of those. Right. So it meant that this, the people in Strasbourg could more easily do their own church reforms because yeah. they weren't subjected to any of these mm -hmm. other authorities. Makes sense. And it also meant that they weren't obligated to punish other religious dissidents. Mm. So pretty quickly, a, a motley crew mm -hmm. of religious dissidents ended up in Strasbourg. Yeah, makes sense. Finding toleration and, wow. and peace there. Mm -hmm. And of, of all the stops on this trip, Bernard Rothman stayed the longest in Strasbourg. And while they wanted him to study under Bootser and Wolfgang Capito, he started to talk to more of the religious dissidents who were in the city of okay. Strasbourg, including a guy by the name of Kaspar Schwenkfeld. That's a name. That's a name, too. Kaspar, also rejected from my, from my baby list. <laughs> and there are still Schwenkfeldian churches today. Wow. Uh, pr there probably should be more, but it's, it's obviously pretty rare. Kaspar Schwenkfeld was one of the people who got a letter of endorsement from Martin Luther. Okay. But later on, Schwenkfeld changed his mind about the Eucharist or, or communion. Okay. And he decided he became a... Kaspar Schwenfeld became a spiritualist. Oh, what does that even mean? Yeah. I'm not entirely sure if I fully get it. But okay. Kaspar Schwenfeld believed that when Christians participated in the communion meal, that they were consuming the spiritual body of Christ. Okay. Rather than the Catholic understanding of it still being the physical body of Christ. And the more Anabaptist understanding was that it was a kind of a memorial observance that when Christians get together and do it, they're just thinking about Jesus. Oh. And that's what makes it special. Oh, I think I used to believe it was spiritual. Yeah. So then maybe you're part of a spiritualist movement. You could have been a Schwenkfeldian church. <laughs> so Rothman could have been learning theology from Bootser and Capito and right. Schwenkfeld. And maybe he was. But from Schwenkfeld, he would have also learned what does it mean to disagree with Luther, uh, but start something fresh yeah. instead. Because yeah. Schwenkfeld didn't have magisterial power. Mm -hmm. He didn't have government support. Mm -hmm. But he was still starting a movement that had some yeah. uh, staying power. Mm -hmm. So after this trip, Rothman returns to Munster. And he's still a passionate preacher. And his uh, sermons are very popular, and his movement is growing, and he's probably more convinced of some of the deviant things that he believes deviant in the eyes of the Catholics and, and the Lutherans. Uh, so it's, it's worth noting that Bernard Rothman isn't fully Anabaptist at this point, mm -hmm. at least it's not entirely clear. Um, he's mostly a sacramentarian, is what the church history books would okay. call him. So he's pushing back on some of the sacraments of the catholic church oh, so okay. my kids are in catholic school they're learning about the sacraments there's seven and i won't go through all of them but they're pushing when when you push back on some of those catholic understandings of the sacraments uh, then it kind of puts you on the fringes of what's acceptable so bernard rothman pushes back on the catholic teaching of communion the eucharist is, is one of the seven sacraments uh, he disagrees about baptism. Mm -hmm. That's also one of the seven sacraments. Mm -hmm. And he disagrees about purgatory. Oh. So purgatory is the Catholic uh, concept of, of an in-between place. 
that when we die, we mm. go to purgatory mm. until our souls are made ready for heaven. Do they still believe that? Some of them, yeah. It, and it isn't just a theological idea. Not for, not for the church. Because that's supposed to be part of his job. So if, if there's no purgatory, then people don't need to go to the priest to get the priest to pray their loved ones out of purgatory. Right. And, and if the people don't need to talk to the priest to do that, then they don't need to pay the priest mm-hmm. to do that. Then they don't need to pay the church, right? So it's connected to all of the things that make the church and the priests powerful, uh, powerful mm-hmm. useful members of society. They wouldn't say that, though. Right. So, but that was, that was Bernard Rothman's job, right? And if he's not doing that, he's not generating as much money oh. for the church, and he's not reinstilling the oh, values of yeah. what makes the church important. I see. That makes sense. So he's a sacramentarian. He's pushing back on some of these ideas, but it really is inconvenient for yeah, church course. leaders because they have a, a system. Yeah. And they course. have they have rituals. Yeah. That's fascinating. So after this trip, what did he do? He came back? Yeah. So he's he's back and he's pushing back against all of these things. He's okay. teaching about baptism uh, differently. He's teaching mm-hmm. about uh, the Eucharist differently. Yeah, He's see. teaching about purgatory differently. And and he isn't just throwing them out. He understands that what Christians are supposed to be doing is purifying their lives, mm-hmm. drawing closer to God. Mm-hmm. And he says the idea of purgatory doesn't help that. If anything, it gets in the way. I agree, yeah. Right. So this isn't just... Uh, you know, nitpicking the theological ideas. Yeah. Uh, he wants people to be drawn closer to Jesus, mm-hmm. and these things are, are getting in the way. Interesting. So the last of the wise men that we're going to meet okay. is Melchior Hoffman. I was less surprised when Melchior was rejected as a name. Mm. Oh, that was one of them too? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we need to talk. All right. Okay. Uh, and if you're steeped in church history, then uh, you might have realized what I was doing. The traditional names of the Magi from the Christmas story, according to church tradition, it's not written mm. in the Bible anywhere, obviously. Mm. Uh, the the names of the Magi were Balthazar, Caspar, oh, yeah. and Melchior. Okay. But those names were given, according to my research, a thousand years before this. So yeah, it's entirely coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these three men and, and the types of religious movements they led mm-hmm. uh, are very uh, important within the Anabaptist story and, and the Munster story in particular. And a lot of early church leaders in the Anabaptist movement were priests or uh, students who were educated in theology and became convinced of, of, of the Anabaptist religious ideas. And, but that wasn't the case with Melchior Hoffman. Uh, he worked in the fur business. He went from place to place. But even though he was selling furs, he was still in churches, giving leadership, teaching, motivating people. And he went about as an unordained, uneducated, but still passionate leader within the church. What set Melchior apart was he had a special brand of apocalyptic Christianity. That's a fun word. Mm. Melchior Hoffman believed that the end of the world, as taught in the Bible, as he believed was taught in the Bible... Uh, was coming soon, and the primary task of Christians was to be getting ready for that. 
So, did you grow up thinking about, studying about, worrying about the rapture, the end of the world? Yeah, I definitely uh, worried about the rapture daily. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, it wasn't a huge deal in my community growing up, but I think we still talked about it and worried about it more than more than was healthy maybe and when i started studying this era the the reformation uh, i was surprised to find that so many people believed that the end of the world was was upon them because well obviously it didn't end then Uh, but also we looked around in the newspapers in the 80s and 90s and we said all of this is proof that the end of the world is coming but when i looked at the social causes the Mm. changes in society and the economy in the Reformation mm-hmm. Europe, I said, well, no, this is all the same stuff. So we could go through and nitpick our way through Revelation, <laughs> uh, which would neither be fun for us nor the listener probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to kind of touch on one of the teachings, just sure. as an example. So Revelation chapter 6 talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right. So there are uh, four horses, uh, white, red, black, and pale. And the riders are carrying different symbols. Right. Um, And there are different ways to read it. But the symbols represent, as far as it makes sense to me, war, political division, economic instability, and disease. All of these things had been happening. The Black Plague had been ravaging... Uh, there was an army of, of Turks was, was invading invading Europe from, uh, from that direction. Powers were shifting, loyalties were changing. All of these things were changing and threatening the everyday stability of people across Europe. And, and throughout Christian history, when that happens, people find comfort and reassurance in the idea that even when the world is upside down, their Lord will come and rescue them. So you said that this is what they mean, but is that based on your own beliefs or is that something you learned from somewhere? Yeah, so uh, even now people read Revelation differently than they did in the 80s. Yeah. And um, so for for me to say now that I understand Revelation the same way that they did 500 years ago would be irresponsible. But did you get, did you ever learn this in university? Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. Yeah, so... The, the various passages talk about instability, political instability, oh, economic see. instability. Okay. And when that happens, people start thinking apocalyptically. Right. Okay. But Melchior Hoffman wasn't alone in believing that the world was coming to an end or interpreting the Bible in this way. Even Martin Luther wrote that he thought the end of the world was imminent and that understanding motivated his changes, his, his efforts to change the church. Mm. But Hoffman took it to a different level. So Hoffman read Revelation chapter 11 that speaks about two witnesses coming to bring about or warn about the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And he believed that he himself was one of those okay. final witnesses. Wow. Yeah. Who did he think was the second one? Um, a buddy of his, but that's a different <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a longer story. That's funny. Melchior Hoffman surrounded himself, especially during his time in Strasbourg, he surrounded himself with other apocalyptic thinkers and prophets of the end times. Okay. And and these prophets received visions, oh, wow. uh, wild, elaborate, colorful visions. Wow. And some of those visions reinforced his belief that he was one of the last. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. the, one of the final witnesses. Wow. Well, you can see how where this is going to go. Yeah. So there are a lot of stories I could tell about Melchior Hoffman mm. and his circle of prophets. Okay. 
but but there was one that stood out to me. So okay. in Strasbourg, there was a leader, uh, one of these prophetic mm-hmm. vision-seeing leaders uh, named Klaus Frey. Uh, he had done something wrong, and the the leaders in Strasbourg were going to exile him. Okay. And he wanted to fight it, but his wife said, no, I think you should go. She had gotten some sort of vision, yeah. too. So he said he, he agreed he would go, but his wife said, okay, but I'm not coming with you. Yeah. <laughs> so he divided his possessions yeah. and left half of them with her, and then he went to another city. And while he was there, he met another woman Uh-oh. who was uh, convinced of his inspiration and wanted to be a part of that movement. And he was so excited by this new wife and his writings... Uh, he said that he understood her to be the mother of all believers wow. and the eternal virgin. Oh, dear. So we could unpack that at lot. length. That is a lot. <laughs> uh, but in the new place, people pretty quickly got tired of Kloss and his mm. new wife. So when they got kicked out of that place, they thought, well, maybe I, maybe we can go back to Strasbourg. Uh-oh. But when he got to Strasbourg... All of the people in his circle said, okay, but you need to go back to your wife. Right. Uh-oh. And he was so angry about this that he went to the Strasbourg police and reported Melchior Hoffman for oh. various things. Just oh. um, being a bad leader and right. corrupting the people, yeah. that kind of thing. So when the police went to arrest Melchior Hoffman, he was excited. Because another person in the circle of yeah. prophets in Strasbourg had come to an understanding that the end of the world would not happen until Melchior Hoffman was arrested. Oh. (laughs) So he happily went with the police Mm. uh, to prison. And uh, while he was in prison, he was still convinced that the end of the world was coming. And in particular, it would end in 1533. Jesus would come in a triumphal return not just to Earth in general, but to Strasbourg in particular. Okay. Spoiler alert, 1533 mm-hmm. came and went. And when it did, without Jesus returning, some of Melchior Hoffman's prophets in other places decided that Strasbourg was not going to be the new Jerusalem where Christ would establish his kingdom, but it would be a different place, the German city of Munster. Okay. <laughs> And well, why did they think Munster? Well, we'll get into that oh, in the next episode. I see. All right. So well, thanks. The plot for, thickens. The plot thickens. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for following along and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Just a reminder that we have uh, a website and a blog where you can get some of the information that we have uh, pictures and timelines and maps there. You can follow along on Instagram, on Facebook. And all of our uh, podcasts are available in audio through your platforms of choice and also by video on on YouTube. So uh, feel free to follow along, share the podcast with your friends, and uh, send in any comments or suggestions you might have. Or questions. Thanks for following along. Bye. Bye.